And our text primarily will be from verses 4 through 12, but I would like to read beginning in verse number 1. Psalm chapter 90, verse number 1. The Bible says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath we are troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For our, all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. May I read that verse, that last verse once again? I want you to note this. Almost as a summary statement, what we've just read here, the psalmist tells us and encourages us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. I'd like to preach on this subject here this morning, a look at life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we humbly come before thy presence. We pray for your richest blessings upon these moments right now. Help us not to think about what may take place this afternoon, this week, what's already transpired this past week. I pray that, Lord, our true focus would be right now on the Word of God. Help us to be diligent, to be, um, to, to be engaged in what we're hearing here today. But Lord, may we not just hear with our ears, may it be truly that our heart would be open. Speak to us, Lord. We need to hear from Thee about this subject. Both Christian and non-Christian alike need to respond, and I pray that, Lord, when all is said and done with this message, I pray that there would be a response to what is heard. Thank you again in Jesus' precious name. <clears throat> Amen. Out of the 150 chapters that are found in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 90 is probably one of the oldest Psalms that was written. You probably well know if you've been around Christianity and read your Bible enough that Psalm 90 or the book of Psalms actually is a compilation of songs and is written by various men. Seventy-three of them are written by the man that we know of as King David. But this particular psalm that I've read to you here today is actually written by Moses. It's possible in your Bible that you have today, like mine, 
There's a little superscription given right above the psalm. It's not inspired, but it kind of gives you a little insight of the psalm. And in my Bible, it tells me a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, all of us know about Moses. Moses is that great man that was used to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. And I love the way that it states here that Moses, a man of God, oh, truly how we need men of God today. But as a man of God, Moses was used to write this particular psalm, and in it he helped us understand the the wonderful attributes of God, but he also helped us to see from the other end of the spectrum the frailty of man, and in joining together those awesome attributes of God and understanding the frailty of man, he brings it together to let us know that we have an awesome responsibility before that incredible God. You know, I suppose all too often in this life, we focus probably more on the frailty of man and find that life seems to be so very empty. In the barren Mojave Desert of California, there's a monument that would be probably considered a monument of futility. There was a man who was single in his life known as Burrow Schmidt. He spent over 40 years digging a tunnel more than 2,000 feet long through solid granite using only hand tools. Schmidt was a gold prospector who had settled on the north side of Copper Mountain Gold had been discovered on the south side, and so thinking he might strike it rich and that he would need a route for sending the gold from one end of the mountain to the other, he began this tunnel. In 1910, he had actually halfway finished, but the Southern Pacific Railroad completed a line through the area which just about rendered Schmidt's tunnel useless. But by then, the tunnel had become his obsession, and so he kept digging for another 28 years until he broke through into daylight. Well, he operated the tunnel as a tourist attraction until his death in 1954. Think about it for just a moment. Over 40 years to build a useless tunnel through a barren, out-of-the-way desert mountain. Doesn't it seem like quite a waste? But who's to say that Schmidt's tunnel was a waste of his life? A person might conquer the world, but die in his 30s, just like Alexander the Great, and we might say, boy, what a waste of life. A person might become a famous doctor discovering the cure of cancer, so he helps some people to survive maybe a few more years only to die himself of something else. And we say to ourselves, possibly what a waste. Maybe today you're here and you're thinking about how life just doesn't seem to be worth a whole lot. You've accumulated some things, you have amassed some some fortunes, but you realize I'm not taking any of this with me. 
You can work all the way into retirement only to die shortly after retirement begins and never enjoy the things that you've put together. And almost anything that you and I choose to put our hopes upon and our efforts can all of a sudden come crashing down because all of us will face that great leveler known as death. And just in case you think you might avoid it, George Bernard Shaw wryly observed the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. Now, in our life today and in our world, we avoid thinking about death. We're uncomfortable with it. Many will avoid going to funeral services and memorial services because they just want to brush aside this particular subject because all they're thinking about is living life. We'll change the subject if death is brought up. We'll have a little nervous laugh maybe when the subject is broached by people. But I'm here to tell you something today. You can't brush aside this subject too long because all of us know the reality of life and death. And as we think about life and as we think about someday dying, I suppose the question is asked of ourselves internally, how can my life, however long it is, however short it is, how can it have any purpose or value? What will make my life significant? You know, in our world, we have some different philosophies that we think of. There's a philosophy that is rampant in this world. You may not know it as such, but it is a philosophy of the heathenist which says this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the one philosophy of you just live the life the way that you want to live it, and then when you die, all is said and done. But I believe that the other view, the more accurate view, the factual view is that of the Bible, that our lives, if they are linked to an eternal God, will help us realize that our lives truly have significance. I want you to think about something for just a moment as I bring it back to this text here. I made mention of the fact that Psalm 90 was written by Moses, the only psalm that Moses wrote but a very impactive psalm. Now Moses writes this psalm after leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. If you recall the story of Moses leading them out, and I'm not talking about the miracles, but finally getting them out, and they get to the edge of the promised land, and they have an act of disobedience against God, and because of that sin... God has the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Now you think about the futility of life as Moses faced it. Almost on a weekly basis, I can imagine that somebody is dying. And Moses probably is thinking to himself, we could have been in the promised land. 
But now I've got another funeral service to go to. Travel again through the wilderness, another memorial service. Travel again through the wilderness, another memorial service. In fact, if you look at the book of Numbers chapter 1 and you look at what is given here, it is possible that over 1.2 million men and women died during the 40 years in the wilderness. A lot of graves in the desert. And as Moses saw these people who he knew very well, who he had worked with over these passing years dying, I think he began to reflect upon himself, how can this life have any meaning? Now this morning, instead of being driven to cynicism and despair, I believe that as we look at Moses, Moses was directed to a prayer to God. And he noted the reality of our life. Yes, it seems to be passing so quickly, but he noted the eternal God whom we find ourselves connected to. And so today I'd like to share with you about this life, and I'd like to close up with helping us understand that if our life truly is connected to God, we will find meaning and value and purpose in life. Let me give you three simple truths that you must grab hold of. Number one, I want you to notice the brevity of life. The brevity of life. Please notice, if you will, in our text, verses 4 to 5, there are four pictures that are given to show us how life truly is short. Notice, first of all, he says to us that it is like a watch in the night. Now, you almost have to understand the Old Testament cities in which they lived to get this perspective of a watch in the night. There were people that would hour segments over the course of the 12 hours during the night, and one three-hour segment was known as a watch in the night. Do you realize Moses is reminding us that life is just as quick as those three hours are going to go by? But he also said it's, as, it's like a flood, a flood that quickly comes in and then passes off the scene. He says another third picture here, it is like a night of sleep. I don't know about you, but and maybe some of you now today are having hard times of sleeping at night, but I, I, I'm a pretty good sleeper and I wake up in the morning and I think, wow, that night went by pretty quick. You realize that what, that's what life is like? Life is brief. It goes by quick. But he says it is like the grass that grows up and is quickly cut down. Now, if you go through the Bible, you will find over and over this picture of the brevity of life is given to us over and over and over and over. Listen to this in Psalm 102, 11. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. Psalm 103, verse 14. For he, that's God, knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Psalm 39, verse number 5. Behold, thou hast made my days as in hand breath, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. 
Job chapter 7, verse 7, Oh, remember that my life is wind. Psalm 103, verse 15 and 16, As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. James chapter 1 verse 10, but the rich in that he is made low because as a flower of the grass, he shall pass away. But I want to leave you with this verse when we talk about the brevity of life. And it is a verse that has impacted me from the time that I was a young man. It is found in the book of James chapter 4 and verse number 14. And it says this, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Note, if you will, the question that is asked about life. Basically, James says, what is your life? If I were to ask you that today, what is your life? You might say, well, my life consists of, and you might mention your family. You might mention belongings that you have. You may talk about uh, experiences that you've had in your life and describe your life that way. But James, before he allows you to answer about what your life is, he informs you that it is like a vapor. Now, I tell you, when I think of a vapor, I think of the time growing up as a child back up in good old cold New England. I remember some white stuff that would fall on the ground, and uh, it would be cold. And and, uh, the thing I enjoyed as a child was getting outside and uh, playing for a little while. But I always enjoyed when my mother would knock on that back window... And I'd see her hand do this, and I knew there were were warm cookies or brownies and hot chocolate was about ready to be served. And man, that was good. In fact, how many would like to go out right now for some hot, warm cookies and some hot cocoa? Yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Uh, Could we have somebody go go get some for us, please? Uh, but boy, I, we'd, we'd get back on, we'd, we'd get on that porch, we'd begin stripping ourselves of all the layers of clothing that we put on uh, to keep ourselves warm outside, and we'd walk in, and as I walked in our door, I can still see it here, my, the house that I grew up in, straight ahead of that door was the stove there, and my mom would have the pot, and the pot would be boiling, and that steam would come up. Now that steam coming up from the pot for that water that she was boiling, that steam would come up and it wouldn't stay there. It would come out and it would go. More steam would come up and then it would go. More steam would come up and it would go. Do you realize your life is like that vapor? Now it might last a little longer than that little vapor that comes up and is gone, but I'm telling you, it's not much more. James asks a question, what is your life? And he answers it by saying, it is a vapor. You know, history reminds us that life is brief. There was a great Spanish explorer by the name of Juan Ponce de Leon. And it is said, I don't know that history really has backed this up, but it is said that he had searched all of the Florida Peninsula for the fabled fountain of youth. But how amazing to consider that at the ripe old age of 61, Juan Ponce de Leon was mortally wounded by an Indian arrow. 
You know, people don't expect maybe today to find the fountain of youth, but I'll tell you what, we're searching through our longer life through medicine, vitamins, and technology. But with all the science and technology, life still seems short. Over the years, the life expectancy has increased greatly due to better health care and hygiene, healthier lifestyles, diets, and improved medical care. We have access to antibiotics and vaccines, clean water, plentiful and more nutritious food, and we know that through exercise and a smart lifestyle choice will help improve the quantity and quality of our life. I've noted the life expectancy in various countries, and over the years, they have raised. But still, think about these numbers. In the Ivory Coast, where we have our missionary uh, uh, Seth and his dear wife over there, 59 years is the average life expectancy. Mozambique, where Noah Wilkerson and his dear wife are getting ready to go, 62 years. Zambia, where Todd and Kathy Beeman, whom we support, are ministering over there. 64 years is the average life expectancy. In India, G.S. Nair, who we just took on for support and ministering through that country, 70 years. And here in the good old United States, 79 years. As of 2020, the average life expectancy in the world was just over 72 years old. Let's face the facts, folks. The Bible and our surroundings tells us about the brevity of life. In fact, look with me at verse number 10 where he says, The days of our years are three score years and ten. Now, what is that? A score is 20, so this is 70. He's saying, look, your life really consists of 70 years, but if by reason of strength they be four score years, 80 Yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow. How many have come into their 70s or later and have recognized, boy, life is just pulling some punches on me. I mean, there's just some things that are just happening. That strength is waning. That, that It's laborsome to get up every day and do things. I'm just telling you here, 70 years, 80 years, whatever it is, life is brief. Let me give you truth number two, and that is about the uncertainty of life. The uncertainty of life. Now, I think if you're pretty wise here today, you say, well, preacher, I understand I'm not going to live forever, but I do expect to live on into good old retirement years. You know, the truth of the matter is, no person here is guaranteed of a single day beyond this present day. Just note the news, and you'll hear of young people taking their lives. Read the newspapers, you'll see and note about violent people ruthlessly taking the lives of others, or you may know somebody who unexpectedly died of whatever natural causes may have come about. Again, the Bible's very clear about this. It says in Proverbs 27, verse 1, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. I was reading once again here this past week in the book of Luke, chapter number 12, and Jesus here gave a parable about a very rich man. One year this man had an abundance of crops, I mean, the ground had produced so much, there were so many things that he looked at the barn that he had, and he said, you know what, I don't have enough 
place in my barn to put all the fruits and the vegetables that have grown from the ground, he said, I better do something by tearing that barn down and build a greater barn. And how interesting, as he thought about this, here's what Jesus noted here that was said. The gardener, the farmer, this rich man said, I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Does that not sound familiar? Boy, that goes all the way back to the New Testament days. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? I'm telling you, Raya, I'm preaching this message today is because just a week and a half ago, my world was rocked. One of my dearest friends in life who I had anticipated meeting up for dinner and come to find out through the course of events in that particular night, while he was making his way to meet my wife and I, he had a heart attack. Yesterday would have been his 56th birthday, young. But I'm telling you here today, life is truly uncertain. Each of you here today have examples of someone that you knew or maybe had heard of who died unexpectedly. And yet all of us are aware of national tragedies that have happened all through our lifespan. Little did these people know, three of these nine-year-old children and three staff members of the Covenant Christian School in Nashville, Tennessee, know that March 27th would be their last day when Audrey Hale came in and took their lives. Little did they know it was going to be over. There was a number of people coming home for a nice weekend to be able to spend time with their family and friends until a devastating tornado rolled through the area of Rolling Fork, Mississippi on Friday night, March 24th. That tornado was categorized as an EF4, one of the highest. It had wind speeds of 170 miles an hour. It was estimated to be three-quarters of a mile wide, according to the National Weather Service there in Jackson. At least 25 people in the Rolling Fork area succumbed to death, including Melissa and Lonnie Pierce, who were killed when an 18-wheeler landed on their home. You know, when I think of national tragedies, I think back to the time when I was a freshman in high school. Living in New England, we were very proud and happy for a 37-year-old lady by the name of Krista McAuliffe. She was a schoolteacher in Concord, New Hampshire, and she was chosen to be part of the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Also on that mission was a 37-year-old, 36-year-old electrical engineer by the name of Judith Resnick. It was said of Judith that she was a classical pianist. She had great gifts, a wonderful smile. She sat down not long before that mission and took an interview with Newsweek, and she said that after she turned 30, she thought, I'll never get old. But just 73 seconds into its 10th mission, with virtually no warning and all of America watching on, the shuttle's external tank blew up and the shuttle's seven-member crew all perished instantly. 
You know, man lives and achieves only as God allows. Job 14.5, listen to this, mark it down. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee, thou hast appointed the bounds that he cannot pass. Mark this verse down, Psalm 39 verse 4, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Now you say, preacher, did you come in today just to preach a morbid sermon and just tell us how life is brief and life is uncertain and we're all going to die? Partly. But I am here to give you this third point which should help you. And that is the opportunities of life. Life is full of opportunities. Would you note that last verse that I read with you, Psalm chapter 90, verse 12? Look at it again. Moses, after considering everything around him, the futility of life and all of the stuff that's passing on, he says, so teach us to number our days. Now, I I don't think that Moses is telling you now, all right, get your fingers and toes out and and scratch paper and start marking down how many days you have because really, again, life is brief, but no no, no one knows how long they have. But I did a little math. I suppose that if I live through my 75th year, my dad just a couple weeks ago turned 75. And I think to myself that if I live into my 75th year that I have remaining 8,406 days. Possible, but I don't know. But since life is brief and uncertain, here's what Moses is telling us, is that the wise will avail themselves to the opportunities that they have today. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts, that we may think through, that we may consider what life is and use wisdom about it. You know, I read a number of years ago that there's been a motto that great people, those that have accomplished some great things in this life, that they have used and have said many times, and it is this phrase, enjoy today trust little to tomorrow. Enjoy today, trust little to tomorrow. Maybe we could put it this way and just shorten this phrase, it's this, seize the day. Or as the Latins used to say, carp diem, seizing the day. Well, there's a man that you're all familiar with who seized the day, if you will, to a certain degree, A pastor in Seattle, Washington, had this young man by the name of Bill Gates there at his church, and he gave a challenge to 31 students to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and the prize that he would give would be a dinner. Well, Bill Gates took that challenge and won. And the pastor that gave that challenge noted that Gates probably didn't learn the verses for their spiritual value, but because he loved a challenge. 
If you know anything about Bill Gates, the man was a genius in high school. He scored pretty close to what I did, an 800 on the SAT math section. Uh, you check the records later. I, I did turn that into the pulpit committee when I came here. And he scored 1590 out of 1600 on the whole SAT test. He was in his first year there at Harvard, and uh, he dropped out, and together with Paul Allen, co-founded Microsoft with this simple motto, a computer on every desk and in every household. I would dare say that Bill Gates seized the day. Today, he has an estimated worth of $116 billion, making him the fourth richest man in the world. But let me ask you a question. Bill Gates currently is 67 years old. When he dies, what happens to all that $116 billion? Now, you say, well, he's got a will and he's passing it on and he's getting into uh, uh, philanthropy and he's, he's doing all sorts of things. All right, but the, the thrust of the question is this. What is that money, when Bill Gates dies, what will it have on him any longer? Nothing. No person, however much they accumulate, will take any part of this world with them. Stays here. All the houses you accumulate, all the money in your pocket that's sitting in the bank, all the stocks and bonds and and mutual funds and everything else, all of that, when you die, stays here while your soul goes off to eternity. Now, I'd like you to do me a favor, if you can turn there. I'd like you to turn to the book of 1 John, please, and I want you to note something here because I want to help answer this question about what will happen with all this. 1 John in the New Testament, in fact, if you go to the book of Revelation and turn back a few books, you'll come to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, and notice verse number 15. 1 John chapter 2, let me begin reading in verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, what's the world? To many who have accumulated a lot of stuff, they say the world is all of this that I put my hands on. The world is all these things that I have as possessions. But the Bible gives us an understanding of what the world is. Verse number 16, it is comprised of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You say, preacher, I don't understand those terms. What are they? Well, let me put it in this way. The lust of the eyes. Everything that you'd want to do, that's the lust of the 
or the lust of the flesh, all that you'd want to do. The lust of the eyes, all that you'd want to have in this life. The pride of life, all that you'd want to be. So can I ask this question? If you had all you wanted to do, and you had everything in this life, and you were everything that you could be in this world, what do you really have? Because verse number 17 tells us that the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, all of that that is part of the world, it is going to pass away someday. But those who do the will of the Father will live forever. Think with me. What will happen to those rich people like Bill Gates who've accomplished everything they've wanted to accomplish, have gained everything that they've wanted, have been the type of person that they want to be, but when their life is over, if they've not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, all of this will be of nothing. It'll be of naught. I think back to the rich man in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus ended his parable. He said to him, this rich man that this night thy soul shall be required of you, and then who shall those things be? Well, you may pass it down to your children, you may give it off to other people and, and give it away, but it's no longer yours because truly you never had it in the first place. God gave it to you. As I close this morning, considering the fact that life is, un, is short, short that it's uncertain, the question must be asked, what are you doing today to make the most of life? Could I ask this one question of you? There's to be two questions that I will ask. Number one, if I can use that phrase here, seizing the day, have you seized the day to place your faith in Jesus Christ? You say, well, preacher, I... I've never considered it before. I've never heard the gospel. I don't know what it takes to get to heaven. I'm just trying to live my life. I'm trying to do things. And I'm hoping that God sorts everything out when I get up there. Let me just tell you something. God sorted everything out already. He's given us His Word. He's made it clear that there is a way to heaven. And it's not based on what you do. It's not based on who you are. It's not based on what you've accumulated. It is all based on the fact that if you as a sinner would place your faith in the sinless Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. So have you seized the day to trust Christ? You say, well, preacher, I'm a little convinced, but I need to wait just a little while. Hold on, you didn't hear the message. Life is brief. Life is uncertain. You may get out onto the, uh, uh, to the road here today and make it to, try to make it to a restaurant or make it back home and may get in an automobile accident and sadly be ushered into eternity. Let me just tell you something, with more and more people moving into Englewood, it's getting a little crazier and crazier with all these northerners coming down with their driving skills. No offense to you that are visiting here today from up north. I like the bumper sticker I saw one time, pray for me, I drive US 41, you know. 
I'm glad we're not connected so much with US 41, but when you go down there, you realize what it is like. But I'm here to remind you of this. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if God is impressing in your soul right now, you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, I'd like to encourage you today to open up your heart and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need you as a Savior, and I want to go to heaven when I die. Have you seized the opportunity to trust Christ? Number two, have you seized the opportunity to live your life for Jesus Christ? Now you say, preacher, are you meaning to tell me that I need to go ahead and sell everything I have and, and uh, kind of live on some remote island and just go ahead and share? No, I'm not telling you that. I'm not even telling you to be like me, be in full-time ministry. But I dare say that every person here that names the name of Christ ought to consider that their life is totally yielded to Jesus. Oh, sure, you may work a job and you may have a business owner whom you are responsible to and there's nothing wrong with that. And you may have a family and you have responsibilities in that home and you may have other things that you must tend to. But does Jesus have your life? Does He own you? Are you a servant of His? Can you say, my life is with Christ. My life is hid with Him. And everything, as I think about life, I'm not thinking just for me, but I'm thinking, how can I do this for the sake of eternity in serving Jesus? There was a young man by the name of C.T. Studd. He became a British missionary, and he spent his life serving a lot in China. He was in India and Africa. But he came out of a wealthy, wealthy background. His dad was very affluent, and, and uh, it was really, it was based, based on the fact that uh, he had made so much money, and he was passing it down to his son, and his son was coming into this life of ease and wealth and affluence, but his son came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he went to Cambridge University for his studies there in England. And it was while he was there that there were six other men who also had surrendered their lives to go to the mission field. And these men, all of them, had come out of great affluent backgrounds, but they gave their life to Jesus. And before they went overseas to China to help out Hudson Taylor, they preached all over England, and people began dubbing them as the Cambridge Seven. Seven men coming out of affluent backgrounds, having their life of ease all ahead of them, yet they put all that aside, they rejected it, and they said, we're giving our life to Jesus. The most famous of those men, C.T. Studd, wrote this particular poem that I have used a phrase that is over and over in here, and it's tremendous. Listen to this poem. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. 
bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would bring a victory score, when self would seek to have its ways, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever thy strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life? Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear thy call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all." Would you say those repeating lines with me? "'Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.'" Think about that. You say, preacher, is that really true? Yes. The more I live, the more I find it to be so very accurate. And all of us who are saved, someday when we stand before Jesus, we'll probably look back and we'll say, why didn't I do more? Give your life to Jesus. Life is brief. Life is uncertain. But life is full of opportunities. Use them for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads, please, and close our eyes. Lord, I... I come humbly before Thee today. I ask for Your blessing upon this moment, that You'd speak to hearts, touch people here today with the gospel. In Jesus' name. While heads are bowed, eyes are closed, please nobody looking right now. I'm going to have what is called an old-fashioned invitation, and I'm going to invite you to make a decision based upon what you heard. First of all, I'd like to talk to those people that are here today that are without Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. I don't know what it takes to get to heaven. I don't know if when I die that I'm going to heaven. Well, guess what? You're in the right place here today. Because right here, right now, based upon the authority of the Word of God, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you walk out these doors, that Jesus will be your Savior, heaven will be your home. Would you like to trust Him today? You say, preacher, I sure like to trust him. How do I do that? It's simple, by just acknowledging that you're a sinner before God and asking the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, to save you from your sins. You see, all of us are sinners. All of us, our sins will keep us from heaven, but only those will go to heaven who have not by living a good life, but by trusting on the one who Him alone could live a good life, Jesus Christ. 
If you'd like to pray right now and ask the Lord to be your Savior, I'd like to invite you to pray right now. Please understand, as I invite you to pray this simple prayer, there's no magic in the words. This is something you must mean with your whole heart, that you know that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus. Let me invite you to pray this prayer right now as I pray it out loud in short phrases. Why don't you pray it after me to yourself? Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that I cannot do anything to get to heaven. But I believe that Jesus Christ, God's holy son, died on the cross to pay for my sins. And right now, I'm asking Jesus Christ to forgive me of all my sins and to become my personal Savior. Now, if you're here today, and heads are bowed, eyes are closed, I'm the only one looking right now. You're here today and you say, Preacher, I just prayed that prayer. I, I, I meant it with all my heart, and I'm not ashamed of this decision. Just right now, would you just lift your hand up right now? Anyone here today? Preacher, I just prayed that prayer, and I want you to include me in closing prayer. God bless you. Anyone else here today? Preacher, I just prayed that prayer. Would you pray for me? I trust every person here truly knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. Christians, are you living for Jesus? Could you truly say that your life is yielded to the Lord? You say, oh, preacher, I, I think about this in my life, and I think about that, and I wish I would do this better. You know what? This message was preached today to help you to move forward to do what you need to do. And I'm going to invite you today as Christians to come to this old-fashioned altar and to pray. I'm going to invite older people who probably think to themselves, you know, I don't have a whole lot longer to live, but I'm telling you, whatever days you have need to be for Jesus. Older folks, senior saints, would you come and stand at the front and yield yourself to God and say, God, I give my life to you. Middle-aged adults that are here today, you say to yourself, oh, I, I still got a long time and, and uh, I haven't fully committed myself to the Lord. Don't wait. Give yourself to Jesus. You come forward. Young people that are here today, college, high school, whatever age that you may be, give your life. The best life is the life that is lived for Jesus.